We're continuing our series, uh, The Rhythm of Life, and we're thinking, I guess, as we go through this series, of the idea that God's, God's wrapping all this up. This is, this is what we hold on to. God's in control of it, control of it all. He's heading us somewhere. We're heading to glory. This is our hope and our faith, and yet we know we're all making our own little way along the journey. There's ups and downs. We're young. We're old. We're well. We're not well. We're employed. We're not employed. We're happy. We're sad. We're up and we're down. And God's good news is my contention, and the idea of this series is at work in all of that, wherever you're at at the moment. So we're going to explore lots of different ways uh, that we live out this Christian life. And today we're taking a hiatus from the idea of work. We could all use a hiatus from the idea of work, even though it's God's good creation and all the rest of it. And we're looking at the idea of time. We're going to think about the idea of time. John Estrin, who is a, a TV producer over in America, says that the way that we spend our time defines who we are. The way that we spend our time defines who we are. So you might well say that you're this or you're that. You might well say that you're an academic, um, but if you're on your games console for 12 hours a day, then you're not an academic, you're a gamer. The way that we spend our time defines who we are. And if that is the case, I was doing some statistical reading my website of choice was the Daily Mail online, just because it kept coming up as I searched for these things. Um, but if that's the case, if, if our, how we spend our time defines us, then we're all in a lot of trouble. We have, in, in the average lifetime, this is, just, this is just to get us thinking about how we spend our time, to challenge us not just to drift away the hours. God's got something to say to us, I think, about clock watching, about just going through life. He wants us to live, live life to the fullest. But look what we do. The average person in a year, this broke, as I thought about this, I was genuinely sad inside, will spend eight and a half years shopping. Eight and a half. I feel like I just, I just want to get them all out of the way now. Do you know what I mean? If I'm going to spend eight and a half years shopping, we'll spend five weeks arguing. I'll take that, to be honest. That's not too bad. Five, five weeks arguing. I feel like that's a generous estimate. We'll spend a year in the pub. A year in the pub, five weeks arguing. I'll take those kind of statistics. We'll do one year unpaid overtime. Oh, they've got us. One year of our, one whole year of our lives will be spent without getting paid because the person at the top's got us. I think time, 44-year-old guy, who learned to tell the time very young, but spent the rest of his life really figuring out how to get it. I think time's really hard to get. How to spend your time wisely. How to balance out your time. It's really, really tricky. Uh, Seneca said, we are always complaining that our days are too few, yet we live like there was no end of them. It's so hard to balance, balance up, isn't it? I've heard the sort of logic said that somebody who's coming to the end of the days really begins to grasp time. It's look, they really sense, you know, really get a lot out of time. Every moment counts. Somebody with years and years ahead of them, I'm thinking of children in the six-month holidays. You've got no idea how precious that time is. But when you've got loads and loads of time, just as life works out, you don't always appreciate the time that you've got. You don't appreciate it till it's gone. And then when it's gone or it's going, you really grasp the sense of time. I can't 
as I thought about this, to my shame, the amount of times I've said, particularly to my kids, but to lots of other people, as they've asked me to do something lovely and fun and human and life-giving, like coloring in or playing in the garden, I have said, even though I have thousands and thousands of hours to give in my life, I have used the words, I just have got no time for that. I don't have time. I've got thousands of hours. Thousands and thousands of hours. And then I will say about something as lovely as that, I don't have time. And then I'll go and watch EastEnders for an hour and scroll on my phone for an hour, but not do the life-giving, life-affirming thing with my kids because it's hard to get a balance. And I'm kind of being honest in front of you, but it is so hard to get a balance. I don't know anybody who comes to me and says, I've, I've got this nailed, actually, time. I'm really balancing this up well. Whether we're in employment, whether we're in retirement, whether we're young, balancing time out, maximizing ourselves. It's not an easy thing to do. It's a really hard thing to do. So I want us to look at a psalm that speaks about the idea of time. It's what it gives us to think about. This is like an ancient song that gets us to think about time with the idea of God in it. Now, I don't know how much you concentrate when the reading's going on. There's lots to think about in this psalm. There is a darkness and a depth to this psalm, and there is a joy to this psalm. I think that's probably how it is for us with time. The first, well, the place that we'll start off is just by telling you a little bit about Psalm, psalm 90. It's a little bit different, this psalm. Psalm 90, not written by David, the shepherd guy, with the harp and the singing and the shepherding on the hillside, as you imagine him. It's written by Moses, this one. It's written by Moses, and it's probably, the scholars tell me, the, the commentaries that I read tell me that he was written, he wrote it as he was wandering in the desert, as he was getting fed up of not getting to the promised land. So he knows a thing or two about time. He's got something to say about time. The last thing I'd say is, and we definitely get this from Jesus, but we see it in Moses. Anybody who leaves everything like Moses did fled Egypt to nothing. Anybody that leaves everything and goes to nothing as Moses did, either dismiss them as a mad person or hang on to every single word that they say because they've got, they've got something. They're onto something. This psalm's written by Moses, so get that in your... If, if, if Charlton Heston helps you get... as I. Annotate his beard, gets you to that place. Think ancient Egypt, think Midian, think wandering in the desert, think Ten Commandments. This is the psalmist on this occasion. The first thing that he tells us, or the first, these three things that we're going to see, as always, three things that we're going to see. The first one is our experience of time, human experience of time, is really hard to square with an eternal God. A God that lives forever, a God that is eternal. And our experience of time is really, really hard to square. Verse 1 and 2. This is the first thing we see. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world. This is Moses' realization. He's an alien probably one of these guys, I don't know if you feel like this, he's been, probably been an alien all of his life. He was an alien in Egypt, he was a bit of an alien in Midian, and he was an alien as he wandered through the deserts. 
but he finds in God home. He looks at God. He sees that he's just been a journeyman through this life, and he says, yes, that's the case, but I, have, I know that I have got a home in God. Security in God. God is my dwelling place. And I know that this has always been the case. And I know that this will always be the case. It's, like a, it's, it's our beautiful joy if you're somebody that's come to faith in God. No matter how alienated you feel, and you will at some point in your life feel a little bit alienated, we have a home in God. We have a dwelling place in God. It's our brilliant, beautiful joy. But as the text goes on, and it doesn't have a but, it should really have a but. Because this is, Moses opens it up and he says, yes, we've got this joy Yes, God is our home and our dwelling place. But look what he says in verse 3. There should definitely be a but between verse 2 and 3. I imagine he paused if he was to read it out for, for effect. This God who does all this, you turn people back to dust saying, and this is a bit Lord of the Rings, this line, return to dust, you mortals. Verse 4, a thousand years in your sight like a day that's just gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it's dry and it's withered. Verse 4 almost looks like a plea to me. He's like, you, you, a thousand years in your sight is, is just like that. You are that powerful. You are eternal. You've got everything. And yet, yet under your watch, man's life slips away. Under your watch, there is an ache and a mortality and a vulnerability to life. And it's worse than that. Moses, I think, wrote all the book of Genesis. He knows why the ache is there. He knows why life is short. He wrote, as far as I can figure it out, Genesis. Genesis 3.22 says, The Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken, after he drove the man out, he placed him on the east side of the garden of Eden, cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Moses knows that something about, and it depends how you view this creation account, something about his humanness, his fallenness, about him, about the people, means that death is a reality for them. On God's watch. And it breaks his heart. Read what he says, verse 12, verse 7 through to 11. We are consumed by your anger. As he starts to think about what it means that the fall of man has brought about this curse, we are consumed by your anger, terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days, look at how harsh this is, all our days pass by under your wrath. All the days that we live, he's got this, this sense of God being angry about his sin. 
We finish our years with a mourn. Look at how mortal. Consider how eternal God is, and look at how mortal and vulnerable he fears. Our days may come to 70 or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger. Your wrath is as great as the fear that you're due. The message, actually, and it's not a, it's not a version of the Bible, it's a paraphrase of the Bible, says, your anger is, as, as Moses is weighing up these things, your anger given that you're good and all-powerful, and I'm just a human being, your anger is too much for me. I'm at the end of my rope, is how the message puts it. You keep track of all our sins. Every misdeed since we were children is entered in your books. All we can remember, this is how Moses is feeling about God, is that frown upon your face. Is that all we're ever going to get? We live for 70 years or so, we might make it to 80. And what do we have to show for it? Trouble, toil, and trouble, and a market in the graveyard. Who can make sense of such rage, which is what he says, such anger against the very ones who fear you? This is Moses's, I think he's in contemplative mood as he's making his way across the desert. He's thinking to himself, how can this God that I know and this is our story, I think, as well. It will be somewhere down the line. Who is all-powerful? Who is eternal? Who I've known to be good? Who I've known to be so good that I've been able to make him my home? That I've dwelt with him? How can I know a God like that? And yet, my lived reality is that I'll face death. And that I'll live an existence that is all as vulnerable to that sword of Damocles hanging over my head. And how can I face that knowing that somewhere in this, my humanness is part of this equation? If you've not considered this before, if you've not stopped to weigh these things up as you've lived your faith out, if Moses does, who parted the Red Sea, dragged the people out of Egypt, if he has a moment where he's thinking like this, then somewhere down the line, you'll have a moment where you're wrestling with this and you better have a good answer for it. I think this is the reason lots of people wrestle with faith their whole life. We go down this road, this ache of mortality. Who can make sense of such anger? This is, this is why the Bible, I think, is such a good storyline to be in. I think that God, in his wisdom, in one sense, you could look at this and say, God answers this prayer. He intervenes in time. And he brings us out of time, out of time and eternity, somebody that steps in, leaves everything that they have, everything and comes to nothing. We should really pay attention to somebody that does that. And if he gets on the cross for us, and if, he's a, if, he, if he gets on the cross, and if he gets off the cross, and if he gets there as a sacrifice, if we believe that, and we do believe it, because Jesus goes there voluntarily, we believe it's a sacrifice, and we believe he's God's son, because he gets off the cross, praise God. We believe it's God in action in this moment. And if he does all of that, then we know whatever we know about death, whatever it is we know about death and our mortality, 
as we look at Jesus on the cross, knowing that he's God, we know that he loves us. We know that he's good and we know that he loves us. And whatever we know about death, however mortal we feel, however time constrains us, we know that death is not the end. And we know as well, no matter how we feel about God's wrath or our place in that wrath, if we might not even want to think about that, we know, no matter how we think about that, that if he's good and if he loves us and if he brings life, then no matter what goes on in this life, then we need him. See what God does? See what Jesus does to this impossible dilemma? Mortal life, perfect God. He makes sense of it. He squares it. He says to us, you can live. <laughs> you can keep living. Where's it leave us? Where's it leave us in this world of time? Maybe your existence is different, but I think it leaves us still in the temporal. We're still human. We're still flesh and blood. We're still waiting. That's where we're at, in a sense. We know that God's done something amazing. We know that he's healed us. We know that he's got this plan, this rhythm that we are part of ultimately. We know just right now that we are waiting. Waiting sucks, doesn't it? I hate waiting. We hate waiting. I don't, don't know how you get me. They see somebody at the train station when the, the trains are half an hour late. It steals your soul to wait. See people just like slumped in their chair, just like, like broken hearted. You can wait like that, can't you? Really love how teenagers wait. <laughs> like sometimes after church, there's a collection of teenagers and it's like their arms are kind of like they've just about got enough strength to look at their phone out the corner of their eye, this kind of thing. Just waiting. It can steal your soul. It can do that in the church. It can do that amongst Christians. We can just think it's just about waiting. We're in time and we're just waiting to get to heaven. Waiting for God. I think it was a name of a TV comedy that was on a few years ago. We're just waiting. And we can wait rubbish. Or, and I think this is where this psalm beautifully goes and challenges we can wait well. We can live well in the waiting. I didn't get loads of the coronation yesterday. And say what you want about the royalists. But they wait well. They wait like nobody else I've ever seen in my life. They love a wait, I would say. Do you know what I mean? The bits that I saw of the coronation was interviews with people lining the streets of the mall. There's a guy there chucking it down with rain. He had like a piece of tarpaulin and a newspaper, a crossword, and you're expecting him to be at the end of himself. He's got three days to go before anything's going to happen. And he's over the moon about what's happening. Like, what's wrong with this guy? And he says, look, I'm good. Got me crossword. The king's coming. We can wait. Well, I think a lot of the time, our experience of the wait is dependent on what we're waiting for. What it is that we're waiting for. He's waiting for the king. I'll take that. Or somebody like that. And for the royalist, for the enthused, it's not that the wait gets longer and longer and longer, but the king gets nearer and nearer and nearer. The psalm would tell us beautifully, I think, in the ache, that we can wait well. If it's not too cheesy, it might make you remember it. We can wait great. I think that is our calling as Christians. <laughs> you, can, you may well bow your head. We can wait great. 
So then this psalm goes on, I think, to tell us two ways that we can really wait. Verse 12, beautifully, says that we make the most of time. The Bible as a book tells us to make the most of the time that we've got. Verse 12 says, teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. It's a really dark thing on one hand to hope to know how many days you're going to live for, isn't it? Teach us to number our days. Teach us to know how much time we've got. Unless, as I said similar at the start, if you ever meet somebody or watch one of these documentaries about somebody who has got a short amount of time left, maybe it's been tragically taken away. Actually, I got a bit obsessed with, um, well, many, I, many of these stories capture me. The Rob Burroughs story, Tom Parker story captures me. When you see people with short amounts of time, knowing that their days have numbered, actually, they become incredibly wise. They really, really cherish the moments. They live, they don't bother with any of the faff. Little things don't seem to occupy their mind as much as it does when time's not an issue. They live in the richness. They get hearts of wisdom. Moses says to us, because we're part of a brilliant story, because we're part of a story that is short now, but not the whole story. He says, you should live life, as Jesus says, we should live life to the fullest. We should chase after those things. Not just everything. Live life with a heart of wisdom that looks at things deeply and richly and beautifully. It doesn't just meander its way through life on a shallow level. Moses says, no, we're not here for that. God's made this day. He's made this earth. He's made this moment. I read somewhere as I looked into this, eternity is made up of millions of nows. God's word tells us to live now. Now is the time of salvation. Act now. Move now. Make the most. The days are evil. Join in? No. The days are evil. Make the most of every second that you've got to redeem the time. Uh, Paul says in Romans, you know the time. Wake up. Be awake. Walk, as we would call it. No, the Bible says, be awake. Salvation is nearer now than it was before. We are getting nearer and nearer to the king. We're not waiting longer and longer and longer. We're getting nearer and nearer and nearer to the king. Reasons to live and embrace the moment. This is the first thing that God's people do, I think. We live in the moment. We live with hearts of wisdom. We chase after the depth. And then the last thing that we see, I think, Psalm ends really beautifully. Despite, despite Moses really being aware of the vulnerability and the fragility of life, he says God's people are oriented to the future. Just read through with me verses 12 um, through to 17. Look at where their focus is. God's people are future focused. Teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Sorry, 13. Relent, Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we might sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we've seen trouble. 
May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May, your f- may the favor of the, our Lord, of the Lord, our God, rest on us. Establish the work of our hands. If we've got the context right, these people have got nothing to really look forward to tomorrow. They're wandering in the desert. It's just a constant struggle. They're all us griping. There's all this stuff going wrong. Yet, and as we, if we know the story, they aren't going to get to the promised land, many of them, all of them, bar a few. What's tomorrow for them? And yet, they look to the future with confidence. They shape their, themselves around the future. Verse 14 kind of says, God can do something tomorrow that will change your whole life. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we might sing for joy and be glad all our days. These people wandering around the desert look at life and go, still tomorrow, because of what we know about God, he could act in such a way that means that we're singing and dancing, not just for tomorrow, but for the rest of our days. That's their prayer. That's their focus. Verse 15, there's good to come that outweighs the bad. They're living like that. They've had a lot of bad. (laughs) In Egypt, out of Egypt, life has been incredibly tough, and yet they are future-focused. They're looking to the future with confidence because they're part of the story of God. Verse 16, that the next generation will see God, that their kids and their kids after them, even though it looks like they're going nowhere, will see the works of God. Verse 17, that God will be able to take the little that they've done. Verse 17 says, May the favor of the Lord rest on us, establish the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. I don't know what, what they'd done with their hands. I think, they, I think they were living in tents and they'd plowed some fields. But they're looking to life in a city and in a country and in a promised land. They're saying to God, take what we've done, this little bit what we've done, and make it brilliant. They are future-focused people because they've seen what God has done before. They can live in the story that promises things for the future. They can live ahead of time. It really makes a difference where your time focuses. Apparently, watched a few YouTube clips. We can be past-oriented people. We can be present-oriented people. We can be future-oriented people. We can make our decisions based on the stuff that we've seen, our folks do, or whatever else it is. We can make it mostly on that. We can make it mostly on how it affects us right now. Or we can make it on the future. We can make our decisions on the future. Which group of people do you think gets on the best? So the statistics say. So the scientists and everybody else tell us. There's a little experiment that you can do. It's a wonderful experiment with kids, mostly. Put a marshmallow in front of them and say to them, you can eat one marshmallow now. If you wait 10 minutes, there'll be two marshmallows. Apparently, as it goes, the kids who've got the foresight to wait for two marshmallows end up doing very, very well down the line at school. If you've got kids, it might be something worth just doing a little investment in. Get them to hang on for the second marshmallow. If you start to orientate your present decisions to how you see your future going or what your future wants to be, it can make dramatic change. I never did this as a kid growing up, but if you orientate yourself to going to university or to getting a career or to thinking down the line about what you want to be, if you shape yourself, if you're thinking about that now, then the actions that you take in the present will be radically different. But what's God calling us to? Not just a better career 
or a university. God calls us to live in light of what he's going to do ultimately. He calls us to live in his kingdom now. He calls us to live in light of all of the good things he's going to do into eternity right now. I love that phrase. I can't see where the verse is. Living in, living, help us to live long enough to know that the good will outweigh the bad. It just seems ridic- a ridiculous concept. There's so much rubbish, isn't there, in our world? It's so bad. And yet, in God's providence, in God's time, and there will be a time for his people when they look back and there's been so much good that they can't see the bad. God says to us, live in light of that. God says to us, in the future, there is a time when there'll be no more tears. None. God says to us, in the future, there'll be a time when there will be perfect justice. I've got my eye on everything, and it will all be restored. It will all be brought into balance. Live like that. Now, can you imagine a world? Can you imagine if you could just carry that off? Live like that. God says to us, live in light of all of the good things that I'm doing. Live in light of my kingdom. Where does it leave us? We are people who live in the way. We live in the ache, but not forever. And we're not waiting for nothing. God says to us, wait well.